This is The Guardian. Finding your perfect home was hard, but thanks to Burrow, furnishing it has never been easier. Burrow's easy-to-assemble modular sofas and sectionals are made from premium, durable materials, including stain and scratch-resistant fabrics. So they're not just comfortable and stylish, they're built to last. Plus, every single Burrow order ships free right to your door. Right now, get 15% off your first order at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's 15% off at burrow.com slash ACAST. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads. Hi, my name's David Wolf. I'm the editor of The Guardian Long Read. This month, we've been bringing you a few of our favorite pieces of the year so far with a new introduction from the editors of the section. This week's episode is the last of that series, and in September, we'll be returning to our usual schedule. Look out for a similar series at the end of this year, where we'll be doing something similar, highlighting a few more of our favorite pieces from 2022. So this week, I've picked How South London Became a Talent Factory for Black British Footballers by Anafiok Ekpadum. When we speak to writers for the long read, we often say to them, we're looking for pieces that will be interesting to someone who's not already interested in the subject, whether the subject is the glasses industry or British pubs or Australian politics or quantum physics or whatever. And I think this piece is a really good example of what we mean when we say this. It's a football piece that's about much more than football. It's about childhood and the cyclical relationship between older and younger generations. It's about identity and migration and it's about a particular place, South London. But it's also a piece about football itself. And I think he writes about football in a way that will make someone who maybe isn't a football fan feel the things that the football fan feels. You know, it's it's the way that he writes about his memories in a way that's both very specific, talking about the particular boots, the particular players, the particular kits, the particular parks in which they played. But it's also at the same time, very grand and mythic. And this combination of the specific and the mythic seems to me like what makes the piece special and also reflects what makes football unique in the way that so many different currents of society and hopes and dreams and it tells you so much about London and all of these bigger themes about Britain today and migration and racism and things like that. But it, but it also helps capture what actually makes the game special and why so many people uh, see so much in it so many bigger themes in society are filtered through this particular game. And maybe next time you're watching the Premier League or Match of the Day, or you maybe see a news story about football or the English football team or England, then having read this article or listened to it, you'll look at it in a slightly different way. Welcome to The Guardian Long Read, showcasing the best long-form journalism covering culture, politics and new thinking. For the text version of this and all our long reads, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read. How South London Became a Talent Factory for Black British Footballers by Anafiok Ekpenham. Read by Anafiok Ekpenham and produced by Jessica Beck. In the beginning... I remember Saturday training sessions on the rec. 
sprawling green fields and the rolling hill we climbed like a mountain. I remember golas moulded around size four feet and metal studs screwed into umbro soles, mesh bibs and mitre footballs, part-time coaches and passing drills. More than two decades have passed, but I still remember how things were back then, how we gathered on crisp Saturday mornings, seven-year-olds cut loose on Lewisham playing greens. We were young kids pulled into a sport handed down through the local family network, a Lewisham tradition slowly becoming our own, the crossfade of football and Saturday mornings shifting into ritual, every generation just following the last. I still remember those weekends, still see the grass, the pitches where we were baptised. I still remember Hilly Fields. I still remember South London. Hilly Fielders FC was my childhood football club. Hilly Fields was where I played my first game. 30 acres of open grass, thick tree lining and tennis courts. A sprawling grass junction in the Blue Borough, with Broccoli and Ladywell and Lewisham Central quietly lapping at its sea green shores. It is wide parkland carved into residential sprawl, besieged by rows of Victorian and terraced housing. It is the jewel of a concrete town, raised 175 feet above sea level. From our Everest, you can stare down towards the skyscrapers of the city skyline and see steel mountains rising from the earth, glistening along a glass-panelled shorefront. Sometime in the late 1990s, Ron Bell, a local coach and the uncle of a boy from our estate, began running training sessions, gathering flocks of South London infants in the park. Young boys dragged into ritual by fathers who dreamed of one day seeing the family name printed on Premier League jerseys. We found our feet on that turf, swung skinny legs at size three footballs, scampered across the short grass, broke in our new arena. But we were not the first. There were other black boys in other decades who came before us, kids who stumbled to their feet on the same turf. A Hilly Fields FC played these grounds through the 60s and 70s, the few solitary black faces speckled among the traditional team photos on club archive websites. A boy named Don Fields and another named Delroy Richards, a Vic Banton and an Albert St. Clair, black kids with tight afros, South London footballers frozen in time. Ian Wright played these fields in the late 60s too, before Palace, before Arsenal and England, before he became Arsenal's top goalscorer, pulling his shirt over his face at Highbury and revealing 179, just done it, underneath. I never lost a game playing in Hilly Fields, he once said. Never lost a game. Footballers are symbols, an illustration of change in social and economic dynamics of immigration and new communities that have taken root. I was born in 1992, during a time when Lewisham and South London had been imposing their will on British football. The early 90s, a time when Arsenal's David Rockcastle had come out of the Honoroke estate in Broccoli and Wright had come with him. The Wallace brothers, Danny, Rod and Ray out of Deptford in the north of the borough, who went on to play for Southampton together. Rod winning the old first division with Leeds in the year before it became the Premier League. Chris Powell, Kevin Campbell, Michael Thomas, Paul Davis. Their collective presence was an indicator of how things were in South London, how things are, how they will be. 
How a community comes to congregate in a road, a borough, a city, often remains unwritten. These stories lie in family folklore, in oral histories that never reach official records. And so, while there is no definitive reason as to why black communities wandered south into Lewisham, in the characterization study published by Lewisham Council in 2019, the suggestion is that black immigrants arrived in the borough from the Caribbean throughout the 60s, searching for work in hospitals and on the railways. James Layton's book, Rocky, The Tears and Triumphs of David Rockcastle, alludes to the same adding factory work and jobs at the docks to the motivations that pulled black immigrants south. Rockcastle's mother, Linda, worked in Greenwich Hospital. His father, Leslie, worked in local factories. Both were among a steady wave of black settlers carving their presence into South London. In Leighton's book, the Honoroka State of the 70s is portrayed as a Caribbean enclave, reminiscent of lost home countries in sight, sound and smell. Players like Rockcastle, with Grenada and Trinidad in his heritage, are a sign of that early migration. African immigrants began to settle en masse in South London from the 80s. My parents drifted in from Nigeria and Cameroon, as did my godparents. When I arrived at Lewisham Hospital in the summer of 92, and when I became aware of football a few years later, Ian Wright was centre stage. Fathers like mine, strangers in a new country, who are fluent in football's universal tongue, but wary of a hostile time on British terraces, were drawn to Wright and Arsenal and the club's rolling black contingent out of South London. And so, in those early years, I remember a borough and a home bristling with pride for its golden sun. Nobody told you that he was from around here. You knew by instinct. I watched him play in my high chair. His name was painted on the walls, his essence infused into the water. This was his ground zero, and every young kid from that time has an Ian Wright story they are ready to repeat, encounters told and retold by parents like mine until the details have become concrete. There was the school competition I won in year one, a few weeks after Wright broke Arsenal's goal-scoring record. The reward was to take part in a presentation at a school assembly that we were told he would attend. The assembly never happened, but he sent a fax through and I was invited into the staff room to take a phone call with his agent. Another time, he turned up at a community day event in Catford, him standing and making small talk with my parents, my brother and I tangled at their knees, watching the boy from the neighbourhood speak with the West African immigrants who had made the place their new home. The bond between South London kids and its professional football clubs begins early. Saturday morning training sessions on Hilly Fields became rumours of a football team. We cast ballots to pick the name. I wrote Hilly Rangers on some paper. My brother wrote something similar. Neither of our suggestions were picked. The club was officially registered and in 1999, Hilly Fielders FC was born. We played our home games in deep green kits. Some weekends, Crystal Palace would gift the club tickets, and so I attended my first football match proper in that period, a league game at Selhurst Park. A band of Hillyfielders FC families convoyed out of Lewisham and down through Sydenham and Forest Hill in a borough-to-borough road trip. We sat in the family stand, waved claret and blue scarves, and felt ancient palace chants swell in our thin throats. 
then went home and tried to spot ourselves on the telly. For as long as I can recollect, South London's three major footballing institutions, Crystal Palace, Charlton and Millwall, have retained strong relations with the communities that sustain them, have spread long arms into local areas and pulled new talent from the earth, mining the ground for black gold. The Crystal Palace youth system has become a staple in South London, an academy famed for turning out a staggering line of touchline black footballers, wingers and fullbacks who have come to excel in the tight spaces of football league flanks. Wilfred Zaha, Nathaniel Klein, Wayne Routledge, Victor Moses. At my second primary school in Bromley, where we moved in 2001, a community coach from Crystal Palace held after-school sessions for kids interested in football. My brother was invited to trial at the club, and so one evening a week we would travel with my father to the Palace training ground in Beckenham, see the chairman walking through the car park, professional footballers disappearing into the darkness, a sharp enthusiasm rising among us, the belief that maybe this here was the real deal. Nothing ever came of those trials, but my brother and I still speak about the sessions, tease about how we were young kids who could have gone pro, if not but. We reshape our memories to include encounters with the players who eventually made the grade, those who would gain professional contracts and those we still see something of ourselves in. At the turn of every generation, South London presents an icon, a player who comes to mean more, whose brilliance on the pitch and whose identity away from it shapes his relationship with those who stand and support from the sidelines. Ian Wright gave way to Rio Ferdinand with his deep ties to Peckham and his crowning as one of the finest central defenders in British history. When Ferdinand left the game in 2015, the mantle was thrust onto Wilfred Zahar and his generation. Among the first of this new generation to surface was the midfield prodigy, John Bostock. His name floated through secondary schools, whispers on the wind from friends who still played at Palace on weekday evenings, arriving at school the next day with tales about the grace they had seen. He was an anomaly, a marvel of his time, of whom greatness was expected, signed by Palace at five years old and playing for the first team at 15. After Bostock's premature emergence, the remainder of our generation's finest players followed. In 2010, when Crystal Palace had been bought by a group of fans known as CPFC 2010, the club tabled a new strategy to place itself at the core of the local community. It erected billboards with the slogan, South London and Proud, the mantra flying alongside images of the club's local stars of tomorrow. Zahar was among the academy squad members selected to appear in the campaign. Zahar was born in Abidjan, Côte d'Ivoire, and raised in Thornton Heath, in a house so close to Selhurst Park that he remembers seeing the floodlights shimmering from the stands as a young boy. He played his first football for a local Croydon team, Whitehorse Wanderers, and his story has been intertwined with Crystal Palace since he was scouted at the age of eight. His presence in the Premier League and his relationship with England have begun to throw light on the nuances of identity and home for black British people, for the generations of African and Caribbean families raised in the old traditions of a new country. In that passing of time, they have slowly been carving out an identity of their own.
Thank you for listening to The Guardian Long Read. We'll be back after this. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The audio long read is supported by BetterHelp. Here's a question. If you had an extra hour in your day, what would you do with it? Watch TV? Read a book? Meet up with a friend? Maybe a little nap? A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. But for what? Perhaps to best answer that, you need to work out what's truly important to you, then make that a priority. Therapy can help you work out what's most important to you. It isn't just for those who've unfortunately experienced trauma in their lives. Therapy can be helpful for learning positive coping skills and for setting boundaries. It can empower you to be the best version of yourself. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists anytime for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com slash audiolongread today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash audio long read. Welcome back to The Guardian Long Read. Zahar was an England international until the age of 20. He played for the under-19s and the under-21s and for the full team at Wembley. Many of the friends he met through football's youth system still turn out for the national team today. But in 2016, three years after his last performance, Zaha pledged international allegiance to his birth country, Cote d'Ivoire. In response, England manager Gareth Southgate said, if you don't feel that internal 100% passion for England, then I'm not sure it's for me to sell that to you. It should be your desire to do it. Although I'm always willing to sit down with players, it should be them coming to us. The inherent desire of wanting to play for your country is the most important thing. Southgate's comments hinted at a subtle misunderstanding of kids with dual heritage, an inability to recognise the shifting sense of home that can exist for those like Zahar, for those like me. For many first and second generation immigrants whose parents or grandparents found new homes in Britain, whose recent family lines are staggered across the continents. The inherent desire of wanting to play for your country can manifest uneasily amid these tensions. Our passions are divided, our identities frayed. Our upbringings were British, our families come from countries far from here. We carry their stories in our surnames. The matter of nationality is a complex one. In that uneasy straddling of home countries and birthplaces, For some, South London has become an identity in itself, 
a holding space to balance the fragments of themselves that never quite fit. I just came here from the age of four, and South London is all I know really, Zahar once told an interviewer, years deep in the Premier League, but still deeply local in his presence. Still turning out at five-a-side pitches with friends in the summer, still driving his car over the same streets he rode his bike on to the stadium. In 2013, when still playing for England, Zahar was asked about his Ivorian roots and his subsequent life in Britain. I think of myself as a Londoner than anything else, he said. Among Zahar's generation of players who emerged from the Crystal Palace youth system, there is a scattering of black boys bred in South London who wear varying international crests on their jerseys. Victor Moses played in the England youth system, like Zahar, and then turned out for Nigeria. Sean Scannell, of Jamaican heritage, who also featured on the billboard, pledged for Ireland. Nathaniel Klein for England. John Bostock declared for Trinidad and Tobago. Dual heritage is encoded in South London's DNA. These footballers are emblems of settled communities. The rising total of African countries they represent are an indication of how the black presence in South London has broadened between the first generation and mine. The starry-eyed gaze we set upon footballers in our infancy begins to fade as we get older. We never realised back then that among many things, the kind of success you dream of in football is not a consequence of skill alone, but of mentality and divine timing, of proper guidance and luck randomly allotted. After offers from Barcelona and a move to Tottenham at 16, Bostock drifted quietly through the leagues across Europe. A season in Turkey, three more in Belgium. His story, a footnote in South London folklore. Another boy who, for a brief moment, flew close to the sun. Today, Bostock is 30 and plays his football for Doncaster Rovers in League One. The lower leagues are fuelled by these players, black footballers who never quite made the grade at the elite level and now play their football in the national and regional leagues. Boys I schooled with, or had heard of, who now turn out for Bromley and Cray Wanderers and Welling United. Footballers are no longer our superheroes, just men and women feeling their way through life the best way they know how. But that sense of boyish wonder is inherited by the next generation. Young cousins and family friends of mine being dragged gradually into the ritual. As I moved through my 20s, I began to hear stories of chance encounters and rumours bonding them to local heroes. Rio Ferdinand saw a family friend of ours running late for school on a cold morning, stopped his car and drove him to the school gates. Ferdinand, again, spotted in a pie and mash shop on a local high street, the Wright Phillips brothers, Sean and Bradley, driving past my godbrother's old house in Crofton Park. Tradition reaffirming itself for the young. I tore my hamstring when I was 24. In the second half of a National Cup game, I was chasing a winger when I felt the muscle shred behind the knee. I collapsed on the bobbled pitch. It was a grade two tear and I walked with crutches for weeks. My season was abruptly ended. I broke with my Saturday routine for the first time since I was 11. 
Weekends that for so long had meant crumbling dressing rooms and faded kits at sports grounds across South London and North Kent were now open. I filled the void with the friend's spare Charlton tickets and sat in the East Stand at the Valley for four, five, six games. Travelled away to Watford and to Mirwall. Caught the team when they were quietly excited about a new generation of local players making their way into the first team. Adamola Lookman, raised in Peckham by Nigerian immigrants, and Joe Gomez from Catford, son of a Gambian father and an English mother. Lookman is now at Everton and Gomez at Liverpool. They are part of a golden South London generation that in the years following my brief stay on the East Stand has gathered mass adulation across the British media. A generation that has drawn comparisons with the French boys from the Banlieues, who won the World Cup in 2018, with Jaden Sancho and Reese Nelson, who grew up together on the Ellsbury estate, not far from where Ryan Bertrand followed Rio Ferdinand out of the Friary estate in Peckham, with Aaron Wambasaka following a long line of Crystal Palace touchline players, with Callum Hutton odoi and Jonathan Panzo, with the Cessignon siblings and the Shaloba brothers. The rest of the country has become wise to a footballing legacy that has been at work for five decades. And, with the European Championship and World Cup on the horizon, they wait in hope. Hillyfielders FC still stands. The club is 22 years old. They moved grounds a few years back, down Brockley Road to Honor Oak Park, and now field 17 teams across local leagues. Arsenal striker Eddie Nketiah had his start with the club, some 40 years after Ian Wright charged up and down on the old home ground. Like many boys from across South London, Nketiah idolised Wright as a child. The two are friends now. Growing up in similar areas, we can relate to each other, Nketiah explained in an interview a few years ago. In another, he said of Wright, whenever I need to speak to somebody, he's always there and available. That sense of subtle affiliation to them both has led me to keep track of his career. And now, whenever the name Inketia flashes across the screen, I'm drawn to memories of the gaping greens and Saturday sessions on Hilly Fields. I dig out my laminated Hilly Fielders membership card, which still hangs in my mum's kitchen and reads, Member 008, and wrestle with the thought that Inketia and the club share the same birth year, 1999. I think about how Inketia, like so many others, is the sum of community parts, coaches and part-time staff, immigrant parents and professional footballers pulling and turning in South London for generations, paving the road Eddie would walk from Lewisham to the Premier League. I do not watch Nketiah in the same way I watch Bostock or Scannell or Zahar. I don't demand or expect a Premier League legend from his playing career. I know that his time in the game will be determined by the same forces that met those who came before him conditions of luck and divine timing and good guidance. But he has started well. He is the England under-21's all-time record goalscorer, edging out Alan Shearer and Francis Sheffers, with 14 goals to his name. A few weeks before Nketiah claimed the record, the Ghanaian national team manager, C.K. O'Connor, told a local radio station that the Ghanaian Football Association had reached out to Eddie's parents in an attempt to tease his national team loyalties back towards home. When asked about his Ghanaian heritage, Nketiah said, I'm very proud, it's in me, it's who I am, and it's helped me to be the person I am today. 
but he's reportedly turned down an invitation to play for the side. The matter of nationality remains complex. Inketia is still in touch with his old club and sends back videos at the start of every season, wishing the kids good luck for the games ahead. For many, it will likely be their first encounters with a professional footballer, like mine with Ian Wright. And so, for a new generation, the cycle begins anew. I can trace the lines now, joining the dots between what happens out there on the giant stadium stages of the Premier League and the plastic posts fastened into grass playing fields in South London. And I realised that those early Saturday mornings on the wreck were always about more than ourselves, more than we could see, that the greater was somehow at work. By many hands a man is forged. The lone hero is a myth. We're all threads of something or someone else. For more Guardian long reads in text and a selection in audio, go to theguardian.com forward slash long read or find us on SoundCloud at soundcloud forward slash theguardianlongread. This is The Guardian. Tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts? Good news. Ad-free listening is available on Amazon Music for all the music plus top podcasts included with your Prime membership. Stay up to date on everything newsworthy by downloading the Amazon Music app for free or go to amazon.com slash news ad free. That's amazon.com slash news ad free to catch up on the latest episodes without the ads.